You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Pinson. Thinking that their, their, their racial undertones and, and devices can be seen in their writings. That they viewed other people not with the same value, not deserving the same treatment, because they evolved differently than the so-called race that the writer was a part of. That's another flaw of the evolutionary system, why it doesn't work and why it can be dangerous to try to intermingle it with our understanding of the gospel and Christianity and creation and God overseeing the whole process, that it lends itself to some of this type of thinking. Secondly, so God makes all ethnic groups from one human ancestor. Number two, all members of each ethnic group are made in the image of God. God makes all ethnic groups from one human ancestor. So we're all cut from the same mold. Right? We all come from Noah and his family. But we're not just created in the image of man. All members of each ethnic group are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. God makes all ethnic groups from one source. Started with Adam. Noah comes from Adam. Noah picks up the process after everyone else has been um, wiped off the face of the earth. Which means every human is made in God's image. And this doesn't have to just stay relegated to, to skin color, right? It's every color, it's every shape, it's every age, it's every gender, it's every level of intelligence, every social class. All of us are made in God's image. But we don't always treat each other that way, right? I had this boy in my office um, on Friday just weeping, just weeping. Because there's a group of boys that will not let it go that he was overweight. And he's grown up. He's gotten taller. And so everything's kind of leveled out and evened out. And he's, he's telling me, he's like, I've been on every diet that I can think of. I've been running like crazy. I've been working out like crazy. And, and I'm sitting there telling him, I said, dude, you're not, you're not overweight. Like, you're tall. You're skinny. Like, I can see the evidence of your hard work. I can see the fruit of your labor. And yet... The difficulty, the challenge for him is that he's got a group of boys that just won't let it go. That continue to treat him differently because of the way he looks, because of his shape. Um, All of us created in God's image. So skin color, shape, gender, age, intelligence, all of us possessing the same value in God's eyes. All have a soul, all have eternal value. God's image supersedes in our identity when compared to ethnic distinction and gender. It's the most important thing about us. Now, these other things describe us, right? Like when you're filling out a survey, a lot of times you have to list what gender you are, what race you are, what, what, where you descend from. Like we list those things because it, it helps in, in categorically understanding uh, feedback from surveys and from tests and that type of thing. You don't, you don't have a question about are you created in God's image or not, right? Like that's not there because either the person developing it doesn't believe in that or if they do, it's just assumed. You don't have to answer. You don't have to check yes or no. We're all created in God's image. These other things help describe who we are individually. Male, female, white, black. These things describe who we are, but they don't define us. We're defined by what God's word reveals us to be and that's to be created in God's image number three the curse of canaan the curse of canaan gives no application for how we're to treat others today 
The curse of Canaan gives us no application for how we're to treat others today. One other point I wanted to make about us being made in the image of God. The clear distinction that's made in creation week is that we are separated and different from the animal kingdom. That's the clear distinction. The, 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 the dividing line there is that man is created in the image of God. Animals are not. That's the clear distinction there. The, the reproducing after their own kind that Anna referenced earlier. The dividing line, the distinction is made between man and animal. Not certain individual ethnic groups. Curse of Canaan gives us no application for how to treat others today. Curses are not commands to treat others badly. As we saw last week, the curse fell upon Canaan specifically. The, the implication there is that Canaan's descendants would be overpowered by Shem and Japheth. We see that with the children of Israel invading the promised land. It's also important, we talked about this some last week, Canaan's descendants did not settle in Africa, but in Canaan. Um, it's Ham's other descendants that settled in Africa. So people that want to relate the curse of Canaan to be the curse of Ham and to apply that to African-American people have misunderstood the fact that the curse specifically is applied to Canaan. His descendants settle in the land of Canaan. We can also see in Scripture that the curse is about the whole group, not individuals, with exceptions being made. Uh, in Genesis 14, 18, we're going to get here shortly, Melchizedek described as a, as a Canaanite, described as one from Canaan, who Abraham responds to with blessing and, and gives money to him as a priest. Here's a man who technically just a few chapters later, would be under the curse of Canaan. Later on, we see Rahab and her family rescued as Canaanite people as Israel invades. So Joshua and Moses communicating that the children of Israel uh, are to invade, that the people of Canaan are under a curse and that they deserve God's wrath. But even in the midst of that curse, people being rescued from it. Thank God that even as mankind being under a curse because of Adam and Eve's decisions, that mankind is being rescued from that curse as well. So it's not a mandate to treat other individuals in a certain way. We also understand from Scripture that all families are to be blessed through Abraham, including Canaan. The plan is to overturn every curse. The plan is to overturn every curse, which leads us to number four. That God desires... Disciples be made of all ethnic groups without distinction. God desires that disciples be made of all ethnic groups without distinction. In, in Acts 17, which we already read, I want, I want to draw your attention to the word that's being used there. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That, that, that word for nation is really the word that we would use for ethnic group. So God has made uh, from one man every ethnic group to live on all the face of the earth. And it's the same Greek word used in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations or all ethnic groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. God desires for disciples to be made from all ethnic groups. Um, the early church, I think we referenced this some last week, the early church, there's examples of every one of Noah's descendants being represented in the early church. 
The Ethiopian eunuch traveling through the desert, reading the book of Isaiah, doesn't understand it, doesn't understand, comprehend. God ordains that, 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 that the gospel comes to him, that explanation comes to him. Philip shows up and explains it to him, right? An Ethiopian, one of, of, of Ham's descendants, African-American descent, black in, in color. Gospel comes to him. He's rescued. He's saved. He's brought into the family of God. Paul, a descendant of Shem, a, a Hebrew, uh, religious preeminence given to that, to that group of, of descendants. That, that they would be sensitive to the things of God, that God would reveal himself to those descendants specifically. Paul, an example in the early church of, of a Shemite, someone who comes from Shem being a part, part of the church. And then um, Cornelius and his family, the Gentile family, the ones who come from Japheth, Cornelius and his family, God very intentionally gives a vision to him for him to seek out an understanding of the gospel, to, to know where to get answers to the gospel. Uh, so, so even understanding Noah's descendants, we look into the future and see that, that God is certainly interested in saving all of Noah's descendants, that he's not particular in, in one descendant versus another and how the gospel uh, is demonstrated to them. Number five. So all ethnic groups come from one human ancestor. We're all made in the image of God. The curse of Canaan doesn't give application for how we're to treat others. God desires disciples from all ethnic groups. We see, we see that in, uh, in an example through the early church. And then number five, all believers in Jesus Christ share the common unity of the image of God. All believers in Jesus Christ share the common unity of the image of God. And the spiritual unity of being brothers and sisters in Christ. All believers in Jesus Christ share common unity. We're all in the image of God. And now that we're Christians, now that we're believers, we share an, a, an additional aspect of unity. We're now brothers and sisters in God's family. John Piper describes it as unity upon unity. Uh, a double unification here for us as believers. In Romans chapter four, verse one, or Romans chapter Romans chapter twelve, verse four. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. John Piper described it, he said, the body of Christ has a black hand and a white wrist and a yellow arm and a red shoulder. And the white wrist cannot say to the black hand, I have no need of you. And the yellow arm cannot say to the red shoulder, because I am not a shoulder, I am not a part of the body. Understanding the body of Christ, not just us being made up differently with our giftings, but also being made up differently in our ethnic diversity. That we come together as one. Diversity with the goal of unity. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian. Scythian. Slave. Free. But Christ is all. And in all. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Our common origin in Adam and in Christ warns us against belittling others. We all share that same common unity. We share that with all humankind in the fact that we're made in the image of God. We share it even more so with other believers that we're now commonly unified in the fact that we are in Christ. That those racial lines, those walls have been, have been torn down. Things that previously would have divided us. Uh, and not just from a racial standpoint, from a gender standpoint. He says we're no, no longer male nor female. No longer slave nor free. That we become one in Christ, which brings us to number six. So there's if there's this unity that we're talking about and we're not to uh, to see racial diversity as something that that should stay that way, then it lends itself to, okay, if we become a diversified church, then we're going to potentially have uh, diversified singles. What does that look like in the area of, of, of interracial dating and interracial marriage? So number six. Racial intermarriage is not forbidden for the believer. Racial intermarriage is not forbidden for the believer. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters from your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The prohibition here in the Old Testament towards intermarriage with other nations was based on religious diversity, not racial diversity. And it's really important to connect those two. When God forbids the intermarrying of Israel with other nations... It's not because of racial diversity. You don't have God saying here, hey, don't intermarry. Don't intermarry with these nations because the cultural differences will cause such challenges for you and, and, and your spouse and your children will reap the, reap the consequences of it. You should just stay clear. It's just wiser for you not to do this. The issue that's brought up is not a racial cultural thing as so much as it's related to religion. That it's a religious issue. God says, you don't intermarry with these other nations because they will lead you astray to worship other gods. So it ultimately comes back to a believer and an unbeliever marrying together, which we do see in the New Testament. We do see in the New Testament that, that we're prohibited from marrying someone who doesn't share the same unity and devotion to our Heavenly Father. Because that does create tension in the marriage that no one should have to endure. 
It does create tension for the children that should not have to be endured. That, that's the admonition here is don't marry with these nations. And again, in the Old Testament, there's far more interaction with nations than individuals that we see and how it plays out. And so God's saying, don't intermarry with these other nations because there's such big religious differences, such big religious differences here that will, will cause your marriage to fail, essentially. So the issue becomes, is there common allegiance or not? The only marriage constraints put on a believer are that they are to marry someone of the opposite sex and to marry a believer. Can you think of anyone in scripture that intermarried with uh, someone from another nation and it was approved by God? That there was no issues with it, that it was not denounced to give some verification that this is the correct understanding and interpretation of it. Ruth and Boaz, okay? Ruth and Boaz, uh, coming together. Ruth is a, is a Moabite, right? Am I correct? Yeah. So, so Ruth's a Moabite marrying into the Israelite nation. Um, and, and this is a good thing. This is, this is a, a, a scriptural story for us. It's a, it's a book of the Bible for us. Um, and, and it's, and it's deemed right and it's deemed good and it's deemed okay. Other examples of, of inner, uh, interracial marrying in scripture that's not denounced. Yep, Rahab married, um, yep, Salmon or Salmon, however you say it. Um, yeah, another example. Obviously, God's not going to allow Rahab, a Canaanite, someone from Jericho, to leave, leave her country and then not really get included with the people of God. She says, I want to be a part of the people of God. And so she's allowed and she's given full inclusion into the people of God. She raises a family. She gets married. Now, there's an example where um, an interracial marriage is attacked and denounced, not by God, but by man. Uh, turn your attention to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. This word is translated Ethiopian um, later on in the Old Testament. So we're going to see when we start seeing the table of nations uh, next week in, in 9 and 10 and 11 that, that Cush descends from Ham. Okay, so we've got a descendant of Ham, Ethiopian. So, I mean, Moses married a black woman. Okay, she, she, she's got black skin. Okay, later on in, uh, let's see here, Jeremiah 13. Um, the scriptures talk about can an Ethiopian change the color of their skin? Can a leopard change the spots on its skin? So, so what we're talking about here is a, is a dark complected woman, and and Aaron and Miriam attack it. They're they're, they're against it. Uh, they, they speak against him. Why? Because he married a Cushite woman, um, or he had married a Cushite woman. Like it, it repeats it, and they said, "Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also?" And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all uh, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, "Come out, ye three, to the tent of meeting." And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, 
hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and behold, she was leprous. There's some disciplinary humor here. Uh, it seems by God. You've got two individuals that want to criticize Moses ultimately for the skin color of the woman that he married. And, and, and God communicates to, to Miriam, if you're concerned about skin color. If it's a complexion issue, then we'll make you as white as snow. If you're so enamored with the differences between your skin color, let's really separate the two. Let's take you who who's still would have been uh, darker than us, right? You know, being over in, in that area uh, would have had a darker skin tone than us. He goes to the opposite extreme and says, okay, we've got a Kushite woman who may have been, been very, very dark and says, well, we'll make you very, very, very white um, and, and gives her leprosy. Um, this is an example where, where we have two people from, from other nations coming together and, and we have no reason to think that, that the Kushite woman is not a, a believer in Moses's God. Because God doesn't denounce this. He doesn't see this as a negative thing. The thing that he sees as negative is the attack, the attacking that comes towards the relationship. Which is, which is, an, which is a, a reminder to us that opposition to interracial marriage typically um, could, can, can bring God's displeasure when it's a good marriage, when it's a good marriage relationship. Um, opposition to interracial marriage typically leads to segregation. Um, there, I think it was Tim... I can't remember the guy's name. He was talking about the fact that he, you, you don't find societies where interracial marriage is not okay and also find that black and white individuals have the same value with each other. That when, when it's a situation where interracial marriage is not okay, interracial dating not okay, that it also typically leads to um, other tendencies for segregation and the devaluing of each other. And so ultimately it becomes down to segregation keeps the interracial marriage and dating from happening. Keeps it from happening. And what we find from Scripture is that there's nothing that would prohibit it. When you've got individuals who are worshiping the same God, they can be brought together for a good marriage. John Piper would say that we ought to celebrate the beauty and embrace the burden of interracial marriage and adoption. There, there are many that we know um, that, have, that have reached out and adopted interracially, that have brought others from other ethnic groups into their family, seemingly welcoming and enticing some of the burdens and issues that we talked about that would be used as an excuse for why interracial marriage should not happen and potentially why interracial adoption should not happen. And yet what we find is it being a picture of the gospel where ethnic diversity is being brought together around a common unity for God's glory. And so in reading some of John Piper's stuff, he says that we should embrace and celebrate the beauty of that diversity coming together in a common unity. Because number seven, racial diversity ultimately leads to eternal unity. 
What we find in Scripture is that there is racial diversity in both heaven and hell. But in that diversity, there's a common unity, either a rejection of God or an embracing of the gospel. In Romans chapter 2, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Paul says there are going to be both types of people that are consumed by God's wrath. All types, those that rebel and and do evil, will experience God's wrath. But then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Racial diversity in both heaven and hell. God ordained ethnic diversity and plans to preserve that diversity for all time. And that's where I think it's important for us to embrace the diversity, appreciate the diversity, but surround it with unity. Because in Revelation 7, 9, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, I believe when when we get resurrected bodies, I believe when Jesus comes back, that some of our individuality gets preserved. Right. Like we know that Jesus talks about in heaven, there's there's no giving in marriage and, and whatnot. So we seem to think that our relationship with each other will be different, that, that some of that's not preserved, whether we still have recollection of what it used to be. Probably. I don't know. But I do believe some of our individuality gets preserved in our resurrection bodies. Jesus resurrected. His friends recognize him. His friends see him. He's, he's still a male Right. He's still a male. He's still in a male body. And so I believe that we, we, we keep our gender in our resurrected bodies. And I think there's good evidence to say that we keep our ethnic diversity in our resurrected bodies. Again, that God is glorified in the unity that's seen in the midst of the diversity. That he oversaw the disbursement of nations. He created us with the genetic differences that we're all contained in our in our father. Uh, Adam and our, and our mother Eve that got passed down to Noah and his family. God created those things. He created it. It was a very good creation. Had sin not entered into the world, that the ethnic differences would have still been produced, I believe. It's not, this is not a result of sin. So I believe when God rescues his people back, he rescues individuals and everything that makes them individual. It's preserved for all eternity, I believe. Which brings us to our conclusion this morning. Racial unity is in step with the gospel. So we said in our summary sentence, to embrace the gospel is to embrace racial diversity with a goal of unity. 
So racial unity. So admitting that there's diversity, but there's unity. That type of perspective is in line or in step with the gospel. In Galatians 2.14. Start reading in verse 11. Galatians 2 verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The gospel governs both our beliefs and our actions. Neither should contradict the gospel. So we talk a lot about right belief, right doctrine, right theology, that we want to be in, in tune with the gospel. We want to believe the right gospel. But our actions are so important in relationship to the gospel as well. Because what we have here is Peter, who's helping to plant churches, whose actions stray from the gospel. They're not in line with the gospel. Paul sees what Peter's doing and he says, this is not right, this is not okay, this is not reflective of the gospel. You are dividing yourself racially for whatever reasons, whether he was fear of ridicule, fear of mistreatment from his peers, he divides himself racially and, and refuses to interact in the way that he should, showing that those dividing walls have been torn down. And Paul addresses it and addresses it from the standpoint of the gospel and says, your actions are not in step. They are not in line with the gospel. In our conclusion section here, the gospel plan should lead each believer to embrace racial diversity with a spirit of unity. The gospel plan, embracing the gospel, leads each believer to embrace racial diversity with a spirit of unity. We've already said God's glorified in the diversity. He's glorified in it because there's unity in the midst of the diversity. Why should we pursue racial diversity with the goal of unity as a church? Why, why should we pursue this? If we're saying that to embrace the gospel means to embrace racial diversity with a goal of unity, why should we do this as a church? It faithfully illustrates what we believe. It faithfully illustrates what we believe. If someone were to peek through the windows right now and look into our church, they would not consider us a diverse church. Now, while all of us were not born here in America, visually you look in here, you would not say, well, there's, there's a lot of diversity there in that room. So why should we, why should we, desire and pursue and embrace diversity within this room. It faithfully illustrates what we believe. First of all, that God created all people in his image. We certainly would not want to communicate to this community that we believe only people of our ethnic descent are created in the image of God and have value. We certainly don't want to communicate that only people that are like us deserve the gospel. We, we, we don't believe that. We would never verbally say that. And so we want to be very careful that we don't demonstrate that in, in picture form. 
we talk about being the body of Christ, we want to be an accurate picture of what the body of Christ looks like. Faithfully illustrates what we believe. Secondly, that Jesus is Lord of all, not just a tribal deity. He's not just our God. He's not just the American God. He's not the white God. He's a God of all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues. He's saving people from all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. We don't want to communicate that that God, that the God we talk about is our God. The Hindus have theirs. The, uh, the you know, with most of them coming from a certain area, as though we're divided up with our ethnic descent, and then we also have all of our own religious beliefs, and and it's good for those ethnic groups to keep that. That the eternal direction of the church includes, includes all nations. We believe this. I hope we do. We see it in Scripture. If we believe that the future of the church includes all nations, then we certainly should desire that within this room other nations are represented, that there's diversity represented in our room here. That the hostility that separates has been killed, Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. That Christ came to kill that hostility that exists between different ethnic groups. How can we strategically pursue racial diversity with the goal of unity in our church? How do we pursue what we say we believe in Galatians 3.11? Colossians 3.11. I'm sure we believe Galatians 3.11 too, but for other reasons. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. How do we pursue racial diversity with the goal of unity in our church? If the goal of an organization is to display unity through racial diversity, then race must become a factor in the strategy. Okay, so this goes back to our discussion earlier. Is it ever okay to hire based on race? Initially, you'd say, oh, no, that's not correct. You can't, you can't say that. And yet, when we delve into it a little bit, we say, no, there may be our times where it's appropriate. In, in John Piper's reasoning for why they intentionally strive to hire elders of different ethnic descent, the reasoning and purpose behind it is because our organization, our church, desires to demonstrate racial diversity. Now, if the goal of the organization is efficiency and competency, then it certainly should not matter of what ethnic descent that person is doesn't matter if it's full of black people, full of white people, full of Asian people. If my goal in my organization is to produce efficiency and competency, then it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. But if my organization is all about demonstrating racial diversity and the unity that comes from it, well, then it does become a major factor. It becomes a major factor. And yet we strive, we, we, we shy away from that potentially. We shy away from that. And, and what, what they've done at Bethlehem Baptist is to pursue the diversity, to demonstrate the unity that comes by intentionally seeking out peoples from all different backgrounds to be not just a part of their church, but to be a part of their leadership in their church. Because it's often, often understood that someone of a different ethnic descent is less likely to attend a church that does not possess leadership where that ethnic group is represented that there would be hesitancy potentially to come into 
what would be perceived as a white church or a black church, that I'm not represented in the leadership of this church. And so wanting to tear down any walls of hostility to bring about a spirit of unity. So what does that mean for our church? Um, you know, the canned answer is that well, we want to be a, a global church, so let's make sure that we pray for the nations. And not, not to minimize that, obviously. Prayer is powerful, and we need to be in prayer for nations. But I think it's also right and appropriate for us to become intentional, become more intentional with the type of ministries that we pursue, the type of people that we seek to minister to. Um, I, I think it's healthy, appropriate, right, and it's, it's, ex, it's exciting to me that as we continue to talk about opportunities in Uganda, that we're talking about diversity in the type of people that we would be reaching. That to see people of, of Ugandan descent who are a very clear contrast from our skin color to be reached with the gospel is important to me. It's important to me because I believe it teaches both us, teaches our children racial unity. There's diversity, but there's unity because of the common ground that we desire to surround ourselves with. I think it's also important for us to strategically seek to reach other people in this community that are not like us. That are not like us. Part of the reason that we do the summer fun program in the summer, we could, we could have backyard Bible clubs in, in my neighborhood. We could have a bunch of, of, of white children show up to hear the gospel, and it would be a great thing. Part of the reason that we do the summer fun program and part of the difficulty in doing the summer fun program is that we are seeking to reach people that are not like us. Not like us from a socioeconomic status. Not like us from a skin color status. Not like us from a cultural status. And yet, if we want to be a church... That, that believes that the church's direction is that it's going to be full of people from all nations, tribes, and tongues on the last day. We want to get in on that plan now. Then I think it's appropriate and okay for us to say, well, let's just strategically start trying to include all peoples in our ministry efforts and not just those that are like us. Why? Because it demonstrates what we really believe or what we say we believe. What are the benefits that we experience from pursuing racial diversity with the goal of unity? I think if, if, if we were to become more diverse in this room with people from different backgrounds, different ethnicity, one, we become skilled at reaching all people. The, the tendency for us is to not know how to relate to people that are not like us, right? I mean, I've even dialogued with people that said, Hey, like when I come to summer fun, like I feel completely lost. I don't know how to talk to these people. They're, they're different from me. They're, they're, they're culturally different, not from a value standpoint. I don't feel like anybody's ever told me, I don't know how to talk to these people as though there's a different value being placed on them. It's just that I'm not sure how to relate culturally to, to, to this group of people. I don't know how to culturally relate to them. One of the benefit in us branching out from a diversity standpoint is that we become more comfortable reaching all people and not a specific type of person in our minds. We, we become culturally savvy. Our church becomes a safe haven for all people. 
I think we desire that. I think we want to be that. We want to be the type of church that anybody could come to and find a place to be, uh, find a place where they can learn about God and, and experience community. Not a specific type of person, but for all people to feel like they could come here and experience that. If, if we got to the point where we became a diversified church, it was forced us to evaluate what is preference and what is primary regarding worship. One thing that separates us from an ethnic standpoint is the style of worship a lot of times. Right? And, and we can stereotype certain churches. And if I told you what, what type of thoughts do you have about certain types of churches, you would be able to describe to me from a worship standpoint, well, that type of church would worship more like this. To be diversified in, in our membership would force us, would force Tyson to say, okay, what's, what's preference within our church from a worship standpoint? And what is primary? What is prescriptive in scripture? What can we lay down? What can we take up potentially so that all people feel like this church is for all people? Our church becomes a more viable witness to others when we're diversified. So the application for us this morning. Do my actions say true things about the gospel? Do my actions, specifically in regards to racial tension, do my actions say true things about the gospel? I don't think any of us in here would describe describe ourselves as racist. I don't think any of us would describe ourselves as being... um, prejudice towards others i don't think anyone would if i said how many of you view yourself this way i don't i I doubt anyone raises their hand on that like we see it in others we don't always see it in ourselves um oftentimes this plays itself out in the way that we stereotype other people though um we stereotype to a detriment of the gospel we oftentimes stereotype minorities based on the actions of some and this is the guy I was talking about. I think his name was Tim Wilson. Um, he was writing an article in the Gospel Coalition. And he talked about how when, a, when an individual of a minority group does something, how quickly we then associate the entire group with that action and how we don't typically do that when it comes to, to our ethnic descent. So for us as white people, we don't typically associate all white people to do certain things because of certain individuals doing those things, right? Like I had a guy uh, in in our neighborhood that got picked up uh, and arrested because he was soliciting to uh, to a minor, okay? Or attempted soliciting to a minor. I don't then look out my window and start associating every young white male walking down my neighborhood as guilty of that type of action. But what we've seen in our country, the rise in mistreatment towards those of Arabian descent, Arab descent, because of the actions in, in 9-11. It's, it, it would not be, you would not be, it would not be uncommon, probably, for you to be walking through an airport and to see a white male being uh, kind of patted down and investigated random selection. We're checking you additional security for you to say, oh, that's just procedure right there. But to see someone of Arab descent to then think, oh, I wonder, I wonder if something, if I should be alarmed. 
right? Like that's, that's the type of mentality that's developed in our country because of a couple of individuals' actions that we then associate the entire group with that. There's, there's facts that would say some stereotypes are more true than others. And, and, and so I don't, I'm not going to just say let's completely dismiss that. But what becomes a detriment to the gospel is when it allows us to, uh, it, it affects the way that we value and treat other people in the way that we view them. When we allow stereotypes, things that we're conditioned to think for whatever reasons, it shapes and determines how we then view and treat others specifically in regards to the gospel. You will remember the, the, the Good Samaritan parable. The Good Samaritan parable tears down the stereotypical view of others. Because when you're t- when he's telling the story of the Good Samaritan parable, you expect from a stereotypical standpoint for each one of these individuals to act a certain way. You would expect them to help the Samaritan. Or you would help him, they would, not the Samaritan, you would expect them to help the guy who's on the side of the road. That these religious individuals should be the ones that step out and help. That's what you would expect. And what you find in the story, what's so... What's so controversial in the story is that the Samaritan, who the Jewish audience would have been hearing about, well, you certainly don't expect the Samaritan to do anything good in this situation. They hated the Samaritan people. They despised the Samaritan people. They viewed them as lesser than them because they had intermarried with other nations. And Jesus tells the story to destroy the stereotypical view that others do certain things because individuals in their group have done certain things. That not every Levite is good. Not every priest is good. Not every Samaritan is evil. And Jesus is telling them to to not evaluate and judge based on stereotypical things that they're conditioned to think. And the same is true for us. Peter fell into that in Galatians 2. And Paul calls him out and says, your actions are not in line with the gospel. How you're acting is not reflective of the gospel. And so I want to challenge us this morning, going back to to the, to the summary sentence, if we've embraced the gospel, then it necessitates we embrace racial diversity with a goal of unity. That we, that, we, that we treat others, we value others based on them being created in the image of God, not because they descend from one person or another. That we seek to be a church that tears down those walls of, of, of dividing the diversity and we create unity in the midst of it. I think Jesus would have kind of summarized that parable. You're judging these people based on stereotypes, but the question would be, will I love my neighbor, whomever it might be, will I fall into the stereotype of what a neighbor should be? Will I be what a neighbor should be? The Samaritan fell into that category. He was what a neighbor should be. He, he, he tended to and helped this man on the side of the road. The stereotype for a Christian should be that a Christian doesn't see racial divisions in so much that it does not uh, cause us to value one versus the other, that we embrace ethnic descent, we embrace the diversity that comes with it because we believe that the diversity glorifies God, that he's created us different for his glory, and that we embrace it with a mindset of unity. And so I want to challenge you with that because I feel like the last two weeks, like I've needed it, because I feel like there's areas that need to be cleaned up in my heart. Uh, things that I would never 
admit to, like I'm not okay with them, but things that are kind of there, that, that, that kind of sit in the backdrop and spring up at different times, those are still areas that I want cleaned up in my life. That I want to be reminded that I've embraced the gospel, which means I embrace racial diversity, that I, that I treat people because they're, they're created in the image of God, um, and that I look to the future towards a church that is that is racially diversified, but unified for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for uh, the many things that we've been confronted with through your word today. Um, Father, we know that, that you desire to create a church that's made up of all peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues. And God, we, we want to be a church that celebrates the diversity and how you have created all of us differently. And in that difference, there's strengths and weaknesses for all of us. And God, we're thankful that in calling us to be a family, it allows us to maximize our strengths and minimize our weaknesses as we're able to rely on each other. God, we want to be a church that is a picture of your universal body. We want to be a church that, that is intentional to not think inside of a box that only tries to reach people that we determine are like us. God, we want to see past that diversity. We want to embrace it because we want to see the unity that comes from it. We want to be a church that's made up of people that are created in the image of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ that come from everywhere. Father, I pray that you would help us to deal personally with anything that would prohibit us from being on board with that, being a team player on that, so that we can ultimately be a church that moves in that direction that embraces opportunities for us to kind of be put in a, in, a, in, a, in a place where we might would normally be uncomfortable. So that we can reach people the way that you call us. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.